welcome to Ask the Therapist, a monthly podcast for everyone who's interested in how our minds work, building resilience through journaling and all things therapy. I'm your host, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse and CBT therapist with over 20 years of experience in the field of mental health. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Ask the Therapist. It's lovely to have you here. Today I'm talking with Rebecca Armstrong. Rebecca is a cognitive behavioural therapist and she runs a private practice in West Yorkshire called Little More Therapy. I provide clinical supervision to Rebecca. We've worked together for about six months now, and she's such a lovely and warm person. She's just a real joy to work with. And I asked Rebecca to come on the podcast today because she talked so openly and bravely about her experience with postnatal depression. And I know from my personal experience and clinical experience that postnatal depression is just not often talked about and still around pregnancy and newborn babies there's this idea that new parents are coping really well and it's all a bit mother care and Laura Ashley and actually the reality can be a little different and I thought you know it was it's so important to hear these voices from people that are able to talk really openly about their journey when it doesn't fit the Instagram perfection. So Rebecca's going to talk through her journey and really share some useful practical strategies of what people can do and family members and partners when they're maybe supporting somebody that they're concerned about. Welcome to the episode, Rebecca. Lovely to have you here. Can you start by saying a little about you and what you do and where you're, where you're working at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me as well. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak um, on here. So yes, I'm a cognitive behavioural therapist and I'm based in Bradford in quite a small village called Queensbury. And that's where I've been working for around the last sort of year. Um, I set up my own private practice, which is Little More Therapy Practice. And there I treat people for a range of mental health problems like anxiety and depression, OCD and panic, just to name a few there. And prior to that, I'd worked for the NHS for around 10 years. um, And about eight of that was in mental health services. How did you arrive at becoming a therapist? I'm always really interested because I think it's it's quite a unique career choice, isn't it? It is. And it wasn't um, my first choice. I'd actually trained as a teacher. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, I'd done a degree in education studies and that had always been my aim to be a teacher. And then when I actually started teaching, I just didn't feel like it was right for me. So I ended up working doing administration jobs for about two years. And one of those jobs was working in the NHS as the PA to the mental health lead. So that's kind of how I I fell into, into the world of mental health. And after I'd been working there for about eight months, a trainee position came up for what was known known at the time as a uh, low intensity therapist. I think they're now called psychological well-being practitioners. So I applied for that post and I ended up doing a postgraduate diploma at York University in low intensity therapies. And that's where it all began. So I did that for about five years with the NHS. So it was quite one of those things where you kind of hope to progress a little bit. But actually having that five years experience of working with the mild to moderate conditions was really invaluable then for when I actually retrained um, to be a CBT therapist. Yeah, it's a great foundation, isn't it? It is. You learn an awful lot of things that, you know, only experience can can teach you really. 
So yeah, after that, I then trained at uh, Salford Cognitive Therapy Centre, where I believe you also trained. Yes, I did. Yes, it was intense. (laughs) It was intense. Um, so yeah, I was trained by uh, Dr. Mary Shinner. It was such an intense course and as you say, really, really good training. So I did that um, and got my postgrad diploma in CBT. And then I worked, well, I did a little bit of management, managing the low intensity therapist. And then I, I started to work as a CBT therapist, um, again, in Bradford in the NHS. And I did that for about four years and then became pregnant. And then instead of going back after maternity leave, I decided to set up my private practice. And that is where I am now. It's a very brave move going out into the private world. It is scary. It's um, it's a scary thing to do it, but I'm very glad that I did. It's um, it's a, it's a nice thing to to actually work in now and and just be able to see people and have a little bit more flexibility over things. Yeah, I really enjoy doing it. So we do supervision together and you've talked about your experience with postnatal depression really openly and I know from working with women and new parents that it's often not talked about although many women and new parents struggle. Although having a baby is an amazing time it can sometimes be really challenging for both parents so we're going to put together something that's hopefully really informative and practical for people listening around the subject of postnatal depression so I thought we would start with your journey into motherhood and what that was like for you. Well it's it's quite a long journey into motherhood we'd actually tried for a baby for around five years shortly after we were married and I eventually became pregnant when I was 34 so it'd been a really really long time and I think due to it taking such a long time to become pregnant when I eventually did become pregnant it was a really, really anxious pregnancy. I was so frightened that I was going to miscarry or something was going to happen to the baby that I became quite obsessive about the things that I ate. I made sure that I was eating all the right foods and that I didn't eat anything that could potentially, you know, even that odd cup of tea or coffee. I cut caffeine out. It was a really, really anxious pregnancy. I frequently visited the GP because I've got an underactive thyroid. So I was constantly, more than I should have been, having them check that. And they always say to you, you know, if, if you're worried about your baby's movements or anything like that, you must go, you know, have them checked and things. But I think the frequency of my checking was probably a little bit more than it probably should have been. Did anybody pick up on that? I can't say anyone did, actually. I was kind of just allowed to go about my business of doing all this checking. <laughs> but yeah, it, it turned out to be a really, really anxious pregnancy and, and not one that I'd really sort of been able to sit back and, and enjoy in the way that I would have hoped to have done if maybe if I'd got pregnant sooner and and just accepted that I was having a baby for me it was what could go wrong with this (laughs) oh and so many women say pregnancy is just one of the best times and so to have not that experience must have did you expect it to be wonderful or were you worried no I think my expectation was that it was going to be a really lovely time and I'd be swanning around with my lovely pregnant bump and it'd be all perfect perfect and wonderful but um but it actually turned out to be probably one of the most anxious periods I've ever experienced <laughs> so yeah journey into motherhood wasn't fantastic I mean it had taken a long time and there was as I say a lot of anxiety around around the pregnancy itself and after baby was born when did you first notice there was a problem well 
I'd had quite a difficult birth and I'd been given, I think it's pethidine, the drug that they give you in pregnancy. I think that's how you pronounce it as a pain relief drug. And because of that, I felt a little bit like I didn't have much memory of the birth itself. My main sort of memory was just being handed a baby, really. And in some ways, I suppose that's a good thing (laughs) that you don't remember a really traumatic birth that well. But it did almost feel quite a shock to the system. So you kind of went in in labour and then the next thing you know is you had to be handed this I'd had a baby. Yeah. So yeah, my memory of, of giving birth and that sort of very sort of early sort of period after that is quite disjointed and I have more snapshot type memories of that and obviously after birth lots of people talk about the baby blues and you you know most people are aware that you're going to have that you know quite emotional period as the hormones drop and things but yeah for me it kind of went on longer than what I I felt it should have done I was quite emotional a lot of the time very tearful And in that first two weeks post-birth, you have visits from the midwife and they said that it was very normal to feel like that, but to discuss it with the health visitor if it started to go on longer. And it was the health visitor more who kind of broached it with me and said, you know, are you sure things are okay here? Which they weren't. So that in in the first couple of weeks, quite quickly? Yeah, I would have said within probably about the first five weeks it was the health visitor who'd mainly picked up that there was there was something not quite right and because I worked for the NHS at the time she managed to get me on their weights for some counselling through work so that was quite useful so yeah it had been quite a tricky journey into motherhood and yeah the first realisation that I think there was definitely a problem and it wasn't just the baby blues it was something more than that was probably about four or five weeks post post birth when things just didn't seem to be easing up at all Mm. it's a tricky time because you you sleep deprived you don't know what's morning or night and I mean I don't have children but I've got lots of friends who have children and and have watched this journey through the first few months it's a it's a hell of a time isn't it yeah, I think, you know, even even if you're not struggling with postnatal or, or baby blues, you know, because not everybody does, it is still such a tough time with the sleep deprivation and, and such a massive change to, to your regular life as well, particularly, I think, if it's a first baby and you're not knowing what to expect. Yeah, complete shock to the system. Can you talk us about through the difference between baby blues and postnatal depression? Because like you just mentioned that lots of people have baby blues, that's quite normal, but postnatal depression can be some quite different, can't it? Can you tell us about that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for anybody having a baby, it's a huge change in your life, whether it's your first baby or your fifth, it's it's always going to you know, be a big change in your home environment and things. And I think you go into it with that it's a very much an expectation versus reality and your expectation is that you're going to be overjoyed and happy and it's going to be wonderful you've got this little bundle of joy and I think for some part of that it is but it can also be a really overwhelming thing as well you know you've suddenly got this tiny baby who's extremely dependent on you and you know your life's changed and and that can be quite a scary place I think in terms of that difference between the baby blues and postnatal depression, it's really normal 
in that first two weeks to experience baby blues as those hormone levels drop down and start to return to normal. It was for me a bit like extreme PMT in those first two weeks where I would cry at everything. (laughs) So yeah, and I think I was sort of in that well, I think from probably the midwife's point of view, in a place where they were kind of watching to see if that got any worse or not, or whether it was just baby blues. I say just baby blues. It's nothing to be a just baby blues. It it was difficult. Pretty intense. Yeah. And I think statistically about 80% of women experience baby blues. So it's a really, really common thing. I think that difference between the two is when things don't start to get better after that two to three week period, you know, where things start to increase and there starts to be more overwhelming feelings of sadness, um, often quite alone. So symptoms actually sometimes go up for people. Yes, yes, definitely. There can be that increase of symptoms. And as I say, where it doesn't start to come down after that two to three week period and the hormones leveling out if you're still feeling in that really dark place really emotional really overwhelmed then that could be an indicator that it might be something more than than just baby blues and it might actually be something like postnatal depression that you might need that bit more support with right and it's do you think your birth contributed to it the birth you had that you say it was a difficult birth Yeah, I think not being able to remember a lot of what went on during the birth kind of contributed to it. Because that can make people vulnerable to post-traumatic stress. And I know I've worked with lots of women that have had traumatic births that have needed treatment for post-traumatic stress after. Because our brains like a clear narrative, don't they? Start, finish and end. And it, it sounds like if you didn't have that, so your brain can't make sense of what's happening. It can't. I think for a lot of mums, that can also play a part in that bonding with the baby. If you've gone from being in labour to not having that continuous memory and to just being handed a baby, it can sometimes interfere with that bonding process, which can also be an indicator of postnatal depression as well. And there's a lot of shame around that, isn't there? Because again, there's the mother care adverts that kind of you're expected to have this instant bond. And and actually, after I don't know how long you're in lay before, but I've heard some women, it's days and you're absolutely battered by the end of it. Oh my goodness, yeah. I, w- I was in labour for 18 hours and, and it's a long time to be in your extremes of pain. But yeah, those, like you say, adverts, the media Instagram, all those things that make us think that as soon as we're handed this little bundle of joy, we're going to fall in love. It's going to be love at first sight. It doesn't always happen. And I think there's this real stigma and real fear about actually being able to voice that, that that's normal and that's okay. I think social media has a lot to answer for in terms of making us feel like we should be these perfect people and we should have these feelings immediately. And you know, we're all individuals and we all deal with different ways. And it's really important to remember that. Yeah, yeah. And do people all have similar symptoms or do, can people experience very different symptoms of postnatal depression? I think there's such a myriad of symptoms like the will be with many different things that you may experience all or just a few. But some of those symptoms can be things like sadness, loss of enjoyment, as we were saying real difficulty bonding with the baby, low mood, lack of energy. And as I say, it's not that 
everyone will experience every single thing. I think everyone's experience is going to be unique and the symptoms are most likely to be different for everyone you speak to who's experienced this. And it sounds like it, the key thing is that if it goes on longer than two to three weeks, then... Yeah, then it might be an indicator there where you might need to seek some help. Maybe even if it feels comfortable speaking to possibly friends or family around you. And, and if it feels the need, you know, to contact a health visitor or the GP. So after the pregnancy, was it, was the anxiety still present for you? Or was it just the low mood and tearfulness? Or how did that look? Yeah, the anxiety was definitely present. I think the main thing that I experienced was the low mood and the tearfulness. But anxiety was definitely there. I don't think it was, I mean, obviously during pregnancy, it was more about is something bad going to happen to the baby? When I started to notice anxiety was a problem in association with the postnatal depression, it was around the time my husband had to go back to work. As most people know, partners are only given two weeks off after a baby's born. And for me, as soon as he went to work, I can remember standing at the door going, you can't go to work. I need you here. I, what if something goes wrong? What if I don't know how to feed a wife? What if, what if, what if, what all these questions? It's, I mean, from what you've said, it's just such a crucial time, isn't it? That it's actually two to three weeks that you're struggling with your hormones are up and down that things are just nowhere near settled are they so it's quite shocking that there's only two weeks isn't it paternity leave yeah and I think I mean I didn't have my baby thankfully during during the pandemic but for women who have had where they haven't been able to access support of family and friends as well when their partners have gone back to work that must have been a really, really difficult place because I know for me, my anxiety was extremely high, but I did have a mum on the other end of the phone who I could ring and she could come up and, and things like that. Whereas during the pandemic for people, this must have been a really, really difficult thing. And it's a shame that, you know, as a society, we don't take that into account and say to partners, actually, maybe, maybe this is a great way to support women that actually paternity leaves need to be extended. You know, I just think it'd be a really, really beneficial thing as a whole if people's partners did have that extra time off. And did you have everybody coming round to want a whole baby? And was was that your experience of a very busy time? Not so much, really. No, I have quite a small family anyway. So we had the grandparents come up and things like that. But generally speaking, we didn't have that many visitors. And now whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But it can feel once all that's died down, once everyone's brought the presents up and the cards and said hi to the baby, and then all of a sudden no one's knocking on the door anymore and you're at home with your crying baby and you don't really know what to do you know you've tried the nappy change you've tried the feed and nothing's working it can feel a scary place it can make you feel very very alone without anyone there to kind of reassure or talk to you or tell you it's going to be okay you know it's it's a difficult time I think a lot of women it sounds very very overwhelming it really does definitely 
And I know often new, the new parents that I work with really worry about the impact on the baby when a parent's un, unwell or I guess just feeling overwhelmed because you're meant to be top of your game, aren't you? And this can really add to the struggle, shame and guilt about being unwell or not feeling great, you know, because you should be dressed in Laura Ashley looking like the mother care adverts. And sometimes this can delay people getting help. Did you experience this or have any advice on managing this worry about what to do if you think oh god I'm, I'm really overwhelmed which like literally if I had no sleep that would be me over the edge let alone having to change nappy or try and feed somebody I can't imagine doing that and being unwell and then having to acknowledge having mental health issues yeah it's so difficult so difficult when you've got this small person who's so dependent on you as well and you are struggling with sleep deprivation and as I say, this this feeling of needing to be perfect, which I think, you know, a lot of social media kind of imposes on us as, as women that we need to be a certain way. So I can remember, for example, my health visit coming around in those very early visits, and I didn't want her to think I was doing anything wrong or I was a bad mum. So when I knew she was coming around, even though I had a baby to look after and I'd not slept, I was rushing around, making sure the house was tidy making sure the baby had a pretty dress on and I looked like I got dressed and everything else just I looked like I knew what I was doing I was actually causing myself a lot more stress than I needed to and I think as well as that it it almost portrayed an image that I didn't have an issue whereas inside I really knew that I did but it's so difficult to tell anyone that do you remember what was going on for you inside in those times I think it was just a fear a fear that I feel really overwhelmed and I worry that I'm not doing a good enough job but I don't want anyone to know I'm not doing a good enough job because what will happen then you know all these scary thoughts come into your mind and actually if I'd have actually said to someone I could do with some help here I'm not feeling great then you know I'd have been able to access that support a lot sooner and I think that's that's something you know to really bear in mind that if you are feeling those things if you are feeling down if you're feeling overwhelmed to actually speak to someone. There's a writer whose book's really popular at the minute. It's not postnatal depression. Is it The Boy, the Horse and the Mole, I think it's called? Child Mackesy. And it, there's one page in there where he says, asking for help was the bravest thing I ever did. And I think that's so true. It's a really, really brave thing because it's quite an exposing place to go, do you know what? I'm really struggling here. Do you remember when you asked for help the first time? I do. And it was a health visitor who, who actually offered that support. As I say, she referred me through my workplace to counselling services. But I remember her sort of just asking that question, you know, and how are you feeling? And I thought, I actually need to tell someone here that actually I'm not great. I might look okay because, you know, I've dressed myself and I've made sure the house is clean. But actually, not everything is great. And as soon as you've gone, I'll probably go sit in a crying room holding a crying baby, you know. <laughs> It's sort of important to actually voice that to someone, isn't it? And and it wasn't until I actually started to get that support, I started to feel better again. And what's incredible to hear is that you were you struggled with that, yet you work in mental health. You're a therapist, you know a lot about mental health. You know a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the shame, right? We work every day with people that struggle to kind of tell us really what's going on, don't we? So yeah had that experience but yeah it's still so hard so people who don't know anything about mental health this must be like even more scary in a way 
Absolutely, because, you know, even speaking as someone who's a mental health practitioner, you still don't want to look like a mum who's doing it wrong or who isn't coping. You know, I think we always want to look like with top of our game but actually as I say the bravest thing to do is get out there and ask for that help that you need because that's the first step isn't it to getting better again absolutely and how was all this for your partner what was it like for him becoming a new dad and, and you not being as well as you could be I was discussing this with him prior to the podcast think you know just trying to think about how it was for him and he said that he had very mixed emotions because we'd gone from a place of struggling for so long to to actually have a baby finally becoming pregnant and having this lovely little girl and then he felt really joyous and everything else at becoming a dad but then he says that he was really really overwhelmed because of how I was because he was the only person who was actually seeing the real me the me who was sitting crying at home you know, and he said he found that a really challenging place, which eventually he decided to give up his job to be at home more. Oh my gosh, that's huge. I know. So we went for quite a while just on, on my maternity money. And yeah, that that was a big instigator for him leaving his job because it was just, I can remember sitting there and, and sort of going, I can't do this on my own. I need you at home. We'll live off whatever we can until I'm better again. And that's that's what we did. And it was a huge decision to make. But looking back on it now, it does make me realize the enormity of how I must have been feeling at that time. Absolutely. I hadn't realized that he'd, he'd left his job to be at home. And so it does say a lot, doesn't it, about where you were at that time. Yeah. And he said that he used to feel really guilty going to work on a morning, knowing that I'd be standing at the door going, I can't cope. What am I going to do? So yeah, really, really difficult because as I say, he had such a mix of emotions of feeling really overjoyed and happy about the baby and then actually going, my wife's really ill here, you know? So yeah, really, really mixed of emotions for him, I think. And if there are partners or family members who might be concerned about a a new mum, what would you advise them to do? I think for anyone who's concerned about someone or someone else, I think the first thing would be actually talking to them, actually asking, are you okay? Because sometimes it's such an important question to say, isn't it? Are you okay? How often do we say that to anyone? Are you all right? And it can be scary, especially if you don't know what to do. You know, if the answer's not, I'm okay, then it's like, because I I mean, I think the mental health service is quite complicated and I've worked in it. GPs are snowed under. They don't feel that accessible, especially during COVID times. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Very, very difficult to access health services during COVID at the moment, isn't it? And I think if people do want to access support services, if they do know someone who's struggling, the GP is usually the first part of call, but I would definitely say contact health visitors, even if they're not engaging with that family anymore, they are there as a support system for families. And my health visitor always said to me, you know, even though after, I can't remember exactly what age, but after a certain age, the visit stop my health visit said you know these are my details if you need anything contact me so I always knew that support was there and there's also things like local support as well I started going to play group and it was so nice to be able to speak with other mums and not feel like I was the only person who'd felt like this as well and were women and other mums and parents open were they all kind of going oh no it's great I'm having a great time or where was there a nice mix and people being quite honest and kind of saying this is really tough 
I think it's very, very much a mix. In the people that I spoke to, a lot of people, they go, gosh, this is so much harder than anyone ever tells you it is. And there was quite a lot of honesty there from people. And you would hear things as well, like mums going, oh, I can't get my baby to sleep or my baby will eat this. And you go, oh, gosh, I'm not the only one. That means it's not me that's doing this wrong. It's just normal that a baby doesn't sleep or that my baby never went in her car seat. And I would see other babies in their car seat. She never went in her pram without crying. And I'd see other babies in their prams who were all settled. But I was seeing a snapshot. I was seeing a snapshot of someone else's life and judging my entire day on that one baby sleeping in that pram when my baby wasn't. Whereas going to an actual mum and baby group, they go, oh my God, she, she might be like that now, but she's not going to be like that in 10 minutes. And it made me realize that it wasn't just me. It wasn't me who was doing everything wrong. It was just normal, you know? Yeah. So that, so you got a lot of validation and could see what was really going on and stuff. So if somebody was struggling, it sounds like the first steps would either kind of start talking or kind of ask the questions how somebody is. And then the next steps, kind of the health visitor. Yeah, health visitor and and obviously going to the GP because there's varying treatments as well for postnatal depression. And, you know, some of the best self-help strategies are things like baby massage, which can help bonding with the baby, finding things like that that might be accessible in your area. Remembering very simple things like to rest when you can, not feel like because the baby's asleep, you need to rush around and do the washing and the cleaning and be a super mom. You know, it's about being kind to yourself as well. But in terms of actually accessing support, I would say the GP, health visitor, they're the people who can really, really help in terms of being able to signpost you into those services that might be able to offer a bit more support. You mentioned before that your health visitor referred you for counselling. So therapy was part of your journey. And I know you have a keen interest in supporting new mums and mums with postnatal depression. If somebody was to come to you for therapy, what would that look like? What are the first sessions? Because that in itself, it's a daunting process, isn't it? Especially when you're overwhelmed and really struggling. It can be quite scary to maybe see a therapist and really talk openly. It can. It definitely can. I mean, even sometimes when you're just sat outside the GPs and you're thinking, what do I say when I get in there? You're only there for five minutes, but it can be a scary place. So yeah, it's nice to be able to sort of explain kind of what you would expect if you were to come to a service such as mine. And, and you know, I have quite a small room, nice cozy chairs and everything else. It's all soundproofed and confidential. So on those first sessions, I try and get a better understanding of what's going on for somebody, find out a little bit more about them. So it's not all about the problem. I try and find a little bit about their background, who they are, try and make people feel comfortable as well. And I think to get a feeling for me, because it's really hard to sometimes open up, isn't it, if you don't feel comfortable with the person you're seeing. So I think in those first sessions, it's about really building that therapeutic relationship up. That's really nice what you're saying. And I think it's it. so many people come to the first therapy session, they think they've got to know what the problem is. And they kind of feel pressured of what they've got to say. But we're used to kind of having those first few sessions, aren't we? So sometimes it's, it's about us saying a bit about us and what we do and helping people ease into the therapeutic process, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I think mental health services can be so faceless sometimes. You go into places, having done so myself, and you don't know who you're seeing, what they're going to look like, what the room's going to look like, and all these thoughts go through your head. And you're actually opening up 
what's a really deep place for you. It's it's the things you only think about. And to do that to a stranger is a really difficult place. So I use those first sessions to, you know, just build up that, as I say, that therapeutic relationship to get a better understanding of who I am, to feel comfortable talking. Because like I was saying, even when you go for a GP appointment because you've got a cold, I still sit there outside the room and think, right, how am I going to explain exactly what's wrong with me in those five minutes you've got? And, you know, to be able to explain something as complex as a mental health problem, you know, your thoughts, your feelings, how it's affecting you physically, all those sorts of things can be really, really difficult. And it's about not thinking, oh my God, I've got to go in there and say all these things straight away. You know, take your time with it. Don't feel like you have to lay all your problems out straight away. Just take your time and and just feel comfortable in that process. Yeah, so maybe slowing it down and letting the therapist and or yourself take the lead a little bit. So how did you find seeing a therapist as a therapist yourself? Seeing a therapist as a therapist yourself, do you know what? You think you're going to go into it and go, oh gosh, they're analysing me and everything else. But then I sat and thought about it and thought, well, do you know what? When I see somebody, I don't go, oh, I'm going to analyse you. I just listen to their problems. I just listen to their problems and I work with what's there. And there's no judgment or anything like that. And so I think going in, it's about actually, for me, it was about thinking about it like that, actually going, do you know what, this lady I'm seeing, she's she's not judging me in any way. She just wants to sit there and listen to what I've got to say and see in what way she can help me best. And you think it's going to be a strange place, but actually once you're in the flow of it, it doesn't feel like that anymore. It doesn't feel scary. I found it okay. I've had therapy as well, and I absolutely love having therapy. (laughs) Spending an hour talking about myself is is fantastic, but it's getting over that first session, isn't it? Now I've had therapy a number of times. That first session, I get so nervous. I'm like, how the hell does anybody get to see me? It's really nerve-wracking. But then, you know, as long as you've got a good rapport with somebody, it's just, it's so helpful, isn't it? You forget that you're a therapist as well, because, and, and I see... I've had therapists for therapy that have come to see me. And and like you say, you're just thinking about the problem, aren't you? You are. You are. There's no judgment there. You're not thinking, oh, you're a therapist, you know, and and stuff like that. You're just listening to the problem and you're helping them just like anyone else. And so as a therapist going to see a therapist, it's kind of like viewing it like that, isn't it? That you are a person at the end of the day. You're not a therapist when you're in that room. You're you. And was it tricky, you know, I was just thinking about um, being a new mum and kind of talking about being a mum and struggling maybe with your mental health. Did you have any worries? Like, did it take you a bit longer to build up trust or anything? Because I suppose, because there must be huge pressure to say I'm coping and I'm managing. Just think it must be so brave, isn't it, to say that you're not coping that well? Yeah, I think it is hard. I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to actually have to open up about. Like I've said throughout, you know, social media advertising all make you think you should be a certain way. And when you're not, then you start to worry, oh, gosh, is this normal? But as we've talked about, you know, so many women experience this that actually it is really normal. And it's really, really good to actually open up and tell someone because that's those first steps about getting that help that you need. So, yeah, you do feel a little bit unsure about it or a bit worried maybe that, people are going to judge but for me therapy's always been a really unjudgmental place where I've been able to talk and tell the therapist my problems and even just talking about it can be a therapeutic process in itself 
you realize things that maybe you weren't realizing before. I realized that I didn't let a lot of people help me and maybe I needed to do that. (laughs) So yeah, even that talking can be a really therapeutic thing. But I think the most important thing to remember is that your therapist isn't there to judge, they're there to help. And that's so important. There's lots of types of therapy out there. It can be quite a confusing world when somebody kind of thinks, right, maybe therapy and talking about this is my first step. Is there a therapy that's most beneficial for postnatal depression or what do people need to be thinking about when they're looking for therapy? As I said before, there's lots of things in terms of self-help out there that people can access. But in terms of actual therapy processes themselves, CBT, it can be really, really good for postnatal depression. As we both know, CBT is based on the idea that unhelpful and unrealistic thinking can sometimes lead to negative behaviors and negative feelings. And CBT can really help in breaking that cycle that this creates and helping us realize maybe how our thinking might not be helping us and how we can create a more positive cycle. And that's so important in postnatal depression. As I was saying with myself, one of the things I realized is that I actually wasn't letting anyone else in there to help me because I had this thought that actually people are going to think I'm doing everything wrong. So I need to look like I'm doing everything right and actually breaking that cycle and going, actually, can you look after the baby while I have a shower? Totally changed how I was feeling about things because it changed how I was feeling about me. So CBT was really beneficial and is one of the recommended therapies for postnatal depression. In terms of counselling, not being a counsellor, I don't know that much about it, but I believe the one that's generally recommended is interpersonal therapy. But yeah, I wouldn't like to give too much info on that because it's just not something that's my field really. But that's nice to give kind of you, hopefully people if they're thinking about therapy can go away and have a look at those two kind of approaches, interpersonal and CBT. And then it's kind of getting a feel for which one might be right for you. Definitely. And there's information around that on the NHS website as well. And some mums do find that medication can be helpful as well if they that with the GP it's just about making sure that it's okay if you're breastfeeding and things like that so if that's a route that you did want to go down you know I would definitely say chat with your GP about it and see what's going to be best for you see where the therapy or medical route would would be the better way to go for you. Depending on your GP some are really good aren't they about giving that overview of what the options are in terms of therapy and medication. So Could you talk us through some practical advice for new parents? As we talk on this podcast, we are just coming out of lockdown and we don't know the impacts on new families, but we do know there will have been an impact. For example, many families, like you mentioned before, might not have got the support they would have had in pre-COVID times. Hopefully, and fingers crossed, this is the last lockdown we go through things and playgroups are starting to open up, aren't they? But what can new parents do to look after their mental health? What would you advise? I think as we are coming out of lockdown, things are starting to open open up again. I know our local playgroups just reopened. And so I think, you know, for, for new parents who are in that situation, it might be about accessing initially those things that are there in your community, local playgroups, local mum and toddler groups, baby massage groups, where you can chat with other mums, find out other things that might be local to you that can be a support you know that other mums might know about so I think definitely accessing your local services as they're opening back up is a good thing to do 
in terms of looking after your mental health, I think even things like going for a walk, now we can actually do that a little bit more easily than we could before, can be really beneficial getting some exercise, being able to spend more time around family and friends can be really beneficial as well. If if you're a new mum who's had a baby during the pandemic, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that must have been not being able to access so I would say, you know, it's about actually now we're able to do that a little bit more easily, accessing that support of your family and friends and things. And I think if you are noticing that things, as I say, are going beyond where those sort of more simpler forms of support are helpful, then it might be about actually speaking to health visitors, speaking to GPs and health professionals and, and maybe talking about accessing some of that support we mentioned there, some CBTs and counseling or something like that. Because obviously during COVID times as well, both me and you, Sarah, were doing some of our sessions via Zoom and things like that. And now we're able to see people a bit more in a face-to-face way. I think if people did want to access therapy services, then that can be a really, really good thing to have that face-to-face contact. It does sound, as we've talked through this, that talking and asking the questions seem to be like the key thing you're kind of really pushing, you know, ask people if they're okay. And for new mums, try and talk, really try and say it out loud. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's about thinking as well, if you are a friend or a family member of someone who's just had a baby sort of not just going for the initial you've met the baby and you've given them a little gift and that's it actually going to see that mum a few weeks afterwards when all the the hype of having a baby's died down and things might be a bit more quieter and a bit more isolating and letting them know that you're you're there you know yeah and I think I might have been guilty of going to see a new baby and I'm like home in on the new baby for cuddles and just ignore parents so it's just broadening that out a little bit And the last question I always ask all my guests is, if you had a conversation with your 15-year-old self, what would you say? What would you want your younger self to know? Ooh, that's a a big question, isn't it? Um, (laughs) But yeah, if if I was to talk to my 15-year-old self, the 15-year-old self who was constantly worried about her hair and her weight and the way she looked and everything else, I would say, just accept yourself for the way you are because it's such an important thing, isn't it, to accept ourselves. I think that is the most common answer, actually. Is it really? When I was 15, there was a song, and I can't remember who it was by, but it was called Sunscreen, I think. And it was a song all with advice through it. And one of the things he said in that was that, you know, when you're sort of that age, 15, 16, you're going to look the best that you probably ever will. So just be happy with it. Because now I look back on photographs of myself, I think, why were you miserable about the way you looked? Yeah, I'm actually a point in my life now where I'm quite happy to go out without any makeup and things like that. You know, I, I finally have accepted that, but I wish I'd done it 20 years ago. <laughs> so accept yourself. That's a, that's a nice. Oh, thank you so much for talking through everything today because it's I think it's a very brave thing to do as, as a mum because of the pressure to kind of say everything is fine and everything's okay how tell us about your little girl now anyway how old is she now she's just turned two last week and thankfully I think we might be out of the terrible two so that's excellent <laughs> she seems to get them early yeah we had tantrums from about 18 months and they seem to have died down now so that's that's fantastic but no, she's lovely. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. How can people find out more about you and what you do? If somebody's following this episode, somebody might want to see you for therapy. How can they find you and get in touch? 
Well, I have a Facebook page for Little Mar Therapy Practice. You can find me on there and send me a message or anything like that. I also have a website. If you Google Little Mar Therapy Practice, you found on there as well. And you can either fill in the online form that's on the website or I accept Facebook messages. And my number is also on the website if you prefer to speak over the phone. So yes, if someone did want to book in, I am contactable via those means. Perfect. And I will put all the links in the show notes as well. So people can search on my site as well and they'll be able to find the episode and and get hold of you. Thank you so much. Lovely. And thank you for having me, Sarah. It's been lovely to chat to you today. Thank you for listening to Ask a Therapist. For more information about the CBT Journal, visit my website at sarahdreese.co.uk. You can also sign up to download your free guide to building emotional resilience, delivered straight to your inbox. You will then also receive regular newsletters where I share my blog posts, podcasts and tips and strategies for better mental health and psychological resilience. Don't forget to review and subscribe to the podcast and you can also share episodes on social media using the hashtag AskTheTherapist. This episode was written and presented by me, Sarah Reese, and edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.